0: Well, good morning, Westridge. If you've been around a few years, you know a couple of things. You know, number one, if it's the last Sunday of the year or the first Sunday of the year, I'm usually speaking. You also know what my New Year's resolution is, because I have the same New Year's resolution every, every single year. Anyone remember it? Thank you so much for listening. One man in the back. I see that hand. My New Year's resolution is very simple. It's the same every year, and it's this. God, help me to not be as stupid this year as I was last year. And you also remember my wife Reese's resolution. God, help Gordon not to be as stupid this year as he was last year. Those are my resolutions. So here we are, the last Sunday of the year, a little two-part series entitled Standing at the Crossroads. I think the beginning of a new year is is a good time to sort of bring up that imagery of What's this, what's this year going to hold for us? Which direction am I going to take when I've got choices in front of me? How am I going to decide? What am I going to decide? Uh, so today, what's true greatness? I was reminded of this title when I was reading a New York Times editorialist. He called our culture the Extra legroom Society. And he writes, We recently began plotting an excursion to Six Flags Amusement Park. The discussion quickly turned from roller coasters to perks and status, to just how high we're prepared to fly in this service-obsessed, luxury-laden, class-fractured era of ours. Six Flags, he said, I, I never do this. Of course, I'd rather take a beating than go to some place like Six Flags. But he, Six Flags, he says, offers some half-dozen gradations of access and coddling from a high-priced position near the front of every line to a much less expensive ticket and much longer waits. There are levels, it turns out. Regular gold, platinum. And they suggest that the experience is more than just a, a sprawling day of dips, whirls, and happy shrieks. It's a referendum on your very station in society. Now, for example, a lot is made of commercial flights these days, with all the divisions between first class and coach. And for various supplements, you know this, or with various deals, you can get a few more inches of legroom, for which you will pay dearly, or shy of that uh, a prime aisle seat. You can get to board earlier or later, and thus hoard or miss out entirely on the overhead bins. You know who you are who hoard the overhead bins. You bring too much on. on. Will it be long before there's a ranked queue for the bathroom on airplanes? You'll pay extra for that. But the fact is, the plane mirrors the sports arena, the theater, the gym. And it turns out with taxis, as with Boeing's, There are degrees of pampering. Uber, do we have this app on our phone? Uber, U-B-E-R? Don't download it right now, but afterwards. Go check it out. It's a relatively new car service. It allows you to specify just minutes before your vehicle's arrival precisely how regal and roomy it should be. If you see yourself in an SUV, then an SUV is your chariot in which others will see you. Now, that's why I have a stretch hummer bring me to Westridge every week. (laughs) I keep up. It's important to me. It's as if scalping has come out of the closet, louder and prouder in an age of unapologetic elitism. Luxury boxes now take up more space in stadiums than ever. Elsewhere in some ballparks, the differences between the sections... Is not just that you have a better view, but finer food, a more solicitous staff. Bronze, silver, gold, platinum. That's a vocabulary that we used to use on jewelry and Olympic medals. It's now attached to your Hertz status, your Delta level, your Obamacare plan. It establishes how far forward or back in the pack you belong. Hurting you into categories that sound suspiciously like, don't miss this, sound suspiciously like evaluations of your worth. It's the happy achievability of status. Sometimes we call it the American dream. And it's easy to get caught up in this. Consuming drive for success. To constantly be moving up. Wherever up is. And whatever it means to arrive there. The New York Times emails me. Urging me to surround myself with success. By subscribing to the Times today. For the most part, we live in a culture that's made an idol of success, We're surrounded by voices that spur us toward the next rung on the status ladder. And ads scream loser to anyone that won't or can't buy whatever it is they're selling. And what's amusing to me as I was thinking about this, about this culture in which we live, the extra legroom society, is that it's really nothing new. It may be at an unprecedented scale today... But it turns out the Bible talks a lot about the extra legroom society. And to the extent the Bible talks about it, it's my job to call it out for what it is. turns out we find in the Gospels that two of Jesus' disciples had an extroverted, dominant mother. And she goes to Jesus and she suggests that he surround himself with success and give her two boys a seat on the board when Jesus and company launches its IPO. It goes like this. It was about that time that the mother of the Zebedee brothers, sounds like a rock band, doesn't it? Ladies and gentlemen, the Zebedee brothers, came with her two sons and knelt before Jesus with a request. What do you want? Jesus asked. She said, Give your word that these two sons of mine will be awarded the highest places of honor in your kingdom. One at your right hand and the other at your left hand. She wanted them both to be in a C-suite. And Jesus responded, You have no idea what you're asking. And he said to James and John, Are you capable of drinking the cup I'm about to drink? They said, Yeah, sure, why not? That's just the way I see them saying it. Jesus said, Come to think of it, you are going to drink my cup. But as to awarding places of honor, that's not my business. My father's taking care of that. And when the ten others heard about this, they lost their temper. So reassuring... ...for me to know that the twelve apostles, the disciples, they act just like we do. Thoroughly disgusted with the two brothers. Because these two brothers wanted to get to the head of the line. And they wanted to camp out there. And they didn't care where the other ten ended up. Too bad, you lost your platinum status. And so Jesus got them together to settle things down. He said, you've observed how godless rulers throw their weight around... How quickly a little power goes to their heads. It's not going to be that way with you. Whoever wants to be great must become a servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. That is why the Son of Man has done. That's what He's done. He came to serve, not to be served. And then to give away His life in exchange for the many who are being held hostage. So, like James and John, I think from time to time, and the New Year's as good a time as any, we need to search the ancient paths and be reminded about true greatness. We stand at the crossroads in this new year ahead, faced with competing status signals, all seeking to define for you and me greatness, self-worth, our station in life. So let's... Not let culture do that. Let's let the Bible do that. Sign from the ancient past, number one says, True greatness is found in what you don't have to have. Turns out the battle to get to the top with the most toys, it's toxic. Witness the increasing number of diseases that are attributed to stress. And what becomes painfully obvious when you look at this text is that James and John were only concerned with themselves. All that teaching about humility and servant leadership that Jesus had taught, they'd heard Him in person teach it. How'd they miss that? went right over the top of their heads. So it's a good thing in 2014 that that, that could never happen in the church today. I mean, churches in America today... they they would never be preoccupied with status and titles and the accoutrements of success, would they? Not here, not now. I mean, churches would never be caught advocating the cultural God of bronze, silver, gold, platinum over this teaching of Jesus, would they? That that just couldn't happen. What James and John had not yet learned was that Not having titles and accolades is joyfully liberating. God's title for Jesus is simply servant. When we embark on the course of action that says, I must have these things. Whenever we use the words, I must have, I demand. We need to be reminded that those are the words of an addict. Drugs and alcohol aren't the only things to which people become addicted. They just get talked about more in our culture. But that's not what the Bible talks about mostly when it comes to addictions. What we don't talk about is just as revealing. By and large, the addiction to power and prestige is still the sin of choice in the church. Just like it was right here with the original 12 Apostles. Far too often success is not a goal, it's an addiction from which we need deliverance. That's why Jesus said, I've come to set the captives free. You're a hostage, my job is to set you free. And like other addictions, there's nothing wrong with the substance per se. In this case, status, power, prestige. But like other addictions, they become lethal when out of their proper boundary. And we're just now picking up the wreckage from this country's unbridled quest For power and prestige, broken marriages, estranged and strained relationships, emotionally impoverished children, physical bodies burnt out before their time, a divided government that no longer works, conflict between employers and employees, turmoil on Duck Dynasty, (laughs) and on and on it goes. The words of Jesus still echo when we launch off on our quest to be somebody. You have no idea what you're asking. The adage is frequently true. Be careful what you ask for, because you may get it. Sign number two from the ancient path. True greatness is found in who you're willing to follow. Much is being written about mentors today, but that's nothing new. It used to be called discipleship. A disciple is a learner. A mentor is one who teaches, mostly by example. Choose your mentors well, Jesus says, because when a disciple is fully taught, he will be like his teacher. And that was certainly true for James and John. Jesus said that they would drink... From, whose cup? His cup. Cup in this context means suffering. And Jesus was saying, You have no idea what you're asking for. Because for you, the road ahead means suffering. James, he was the first of the apostles to die a martyr's death. For him, the cup was the short, sharp, bitter cup of martyrdom. John, ironically, was probably the last apostle to die. His was a different cup. Tradition says that he lived to a great old age in Ephesus, but before he died, he was exiled to the island of Patmos. For him, the cup was constant discipline and struggle of the day-in, day-out Christian life. The cup, it'll be different. For all of us. The important thing. Is that the cup Jesus hands us. Is accepted. And celebrated. As an act of our spiritual worship. True greatness. At least in part. Is accepting the cup assigned us. And following. No matter the cost. Well sign number three reads. True greatness is determined by the focus of of our life. In God's economy, greatness is not a matter of the status you've attained, it's a matter of what you're willing to do for others. Greatness is not so much an issue of how many people answer to you, it's the answer you give when asked to serve. Because when we serve, we imitate Jesus, who he says gave his life a ransom for those of us held hostage to the addiction of power and prestige. And the word ransom literally means to pay the price for freedom. Jesus came to set you free so that you could point others to freedom from the addictive compulsion to power and prestige. One of the greatest missionaries in history was J. Hudson Taylor. He wrote one time, I used to ask God if he would come and help me. Then I asked if I could come and help him. Finally, I ended by asking God to do his own work through me. Maybe this new year, some of our prayers need to change. I was thinking about this text and this church this week. And I began wondering, what would happen in a city if a group of servants banded together? each committed to the same master, each at peace with the cup that had been handed them, each liberated from the preoccupation with self-centeredness, each devoted to one another, each concerned not about being served, but serving others, each having opened their eyes to all the lost in need, and those in need, not too far from here. What would happen in a community if there were a group of people who defined greatness by what they don't have to have, by who they follow, by the focus of their life? What would it be like if that community of people met together regularly to create a place where people could be brought to wholeness, to be healed physically, spiritually, emotionally, a place where people could be unconditionally loved, totally accepted, and forgiven with no bitter aftertaste? Would anyone be interested in joining a community like that? I think they would. That's what the church is intended to be. No matter what else you've heard or thought about the church, that's the picture that Jesus paints of the church. That's what we have to offer. When we fall prey to the bronze, silver, gold, platinum definition of success we become, just like everyone else in our culture, addicted to power, prestige, and status. And that has to be one big reason why people are staying home from church in unprecedented numbers today. And you do know that's happening in this country. I think Westridge has an opportunity to be different, to stand out, to make a difference. In 2014. You've already shown that potential with your financial generosity this month. I was flying home from a convention last month, and uh, I saw two friends. One, uh, a megachurch pastor, the other uh, denominational CEO, and they were both at the airport. Turns out, we were on the same flight back to Chicago. And so we're sitting there at the gate chatting before boarding, and then you know the drill as they usually do. The gate agent goes to the microphone to begin the boarding process, and she says, the greatest servants in the kingdom can board first. No, that's not that. That's only on Jesus Airlines. And believe me, this was not Jesus Airlines. No, you know who it is. It's the first-class passengers. It's the platinum-level status holders who get to go first. And in a split second, I knew what I was in for. It was going to be a big letdown. So my friend looks at me, who had been chatting so collegially with me just a few seconds before. He looks at me and he says, Are you getting on with us? Not today. I said. Now, before I go any further, let me just bracket this off. I want to make it clear to all you high flyers, Darren and the rest of you. (laughs) I want to make it clear. Nothing wrong with flying first class. And to be fair, these two were probably using points since they're frequent flyers, and that's that's a wonderful thing. Flying first class is not the point of this story, it's the tone, it was the body language. Of the comment made before boarding. It it was the smirk with which the comment was made. The worst part was when I finally boarded. I had an awkward walk past them to get to my seat in the back. Did I mention it was in the back? And so there they were. Guess where they're sitting? The first row. Barely glancing up as the peasants pass by. And there I go to the back. Did I mention I was in the back? Next to the engine. Next to the galley. Next to the restroom. Seated between two sumo wrestlers. No, I'm making that part up, but the rest was true. All components designed to ensure that I'd have not one restful second during this entire hellish flight. But I mean, I'm not so bitter about it. So, getting off the plane, I wondered. I wondered if my friends would stick around at the gate just to say goodbye to their loser friend and to revel one more time in the status they'd achieved. But by the time I'd elbowed my way out in a scene in a scene reminiscent of the Hunger Games, they were gone, enjoying not only the extra leg room, but the extra speed that allowed them to outpace the less fortunate. And I was surprised at myself, quite frankly, because I thought about that encounter for several days afterwards. Intellectually, I understood. Theologically, I know better. But what surprised me was symbolically and emotionally, it went deeper. It seemed to raise bigger questions for me that I thought I'd gotten past. Turns out I hadn't. What is greatness? What is success? How do you know if you've lived life to the fullest and not squandered it? Does the location of my seat indicate the location of my self-worth? Do I have to accept I'm bronze level in a platinum world? And then I reread this quote from Mother Teresa. When asked about the dangerous and thankless and hard work that she did in India among that culture's outcasts, she said, I wouldn't do this work for a million dollars. The inscription on the only platinum card you need says true greatness is the thing you wouldn't do for a million dollars. But you do it anyway. invite you to take communion with us this morning, and you'll notice there are two very simple elements to this remembrance. There is a little piece of bread, Uh, and then, not by coincidence, there is a cup. When confronting the cross, Jesus said, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Because the cup came to symbolize the suffering that he went through so we could be set free, so the hostages could be set free from our addictions of every kind. And so today, in particular, as you take the cup and drink from it, you are also committing to accept the cup that Jesus has for you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, forgive us win more times than we'd like to admit we have no idea what we're asking for so save us from ourselves and we commit to serve you in Jesus name